genuine question now. Go ahead. When was the last time you experienced decent, not even like exceptional, just decent customer service? Oh, long time ago. I mean, there's no secret formula for it yet. What we do know is that most companies seem to be pretty bad at it. But not you, my friend, not you, listener. Oh, no. You can create an amazing customer service experience when you use the brand new service hub from HubSpot. Yep, this all-new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organizations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who, who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to. I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips. I did know that because I wrote that for you. Well, there you have it. Stand out from the crowd and migrate to HubSpot Service Hub today. Visit HubSpot.com slash service and learn how this all-new solution can help you deliver for your customers. See deeper than they do. So they look at it and they go, hmm, it looks like to me like a bad move. But if he played it, it must actually be a good move. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My name is Leanne, I'm a business psychologist. And my name is Al and I'm a business owner. And we are here to help you simplify the science of people and build amazing workplace cultures where people and businesses thrive. We definitely are. And we've got lots of great feedback from some of our previous episodes where people have said they've got some implementable stuff from it. That's a nice word. Implementable. Implementable. I like saying that. I like saying hedgehog too. I like porcupine. We just like spiky things. (laughs) (laughs) Things with spines. We're not a big fan of invertebrate because they don't have spines, but we are very, very big fans of porcupines and hedgehogs. Mm -hmm. We like ladies of the backbone. Oh, nice. On brand. On brand. Thank you. Thank you. So we are talking about these superstars effect today we are um do we have a title for this yet we do hit me superstar hires the silent culture killers oh that's a bum, good one bum, bum. <laughs> that's a good one yes yeah, so it, it's funny because as a non um people professional myself um, I always thought, oh, well, you just need superstars. In fact, there was a thing about 10 years ago when I was start recruiting for one of my businesses that uh, everyone said, oh, you need to have a rock star. You need to have, and, oh, some people would spell it R-A-W-K, which made me throw up in uh, my mouth. Why? Because I think they were doing the American thing, a rock star kind of thing. Oh, God. I know, really disappointing. So there was a big thing about, oh, you need these great people and how, you, how do you find the ninjas and the superstars? And then as Leanne and I were speaking, well, we've spoken more, quite a lot, actually. Um, we <laughs> That's 15 together. years of our yeah. relationship. We have had some conversations. We have, we have. And so, uh, so Leanne was explaining that's not necessarily the right thing. It's not necessarily the right mm. way to go. So give us some, give us some background. Why, why was I wrong all those years ago? 
I'm still wrong now, by the way. (laughs) Well, that's what we're going to dive in today. But there is a psychological phenomenon called the superstar effect. Um, And there is something else called a toxic superstar. We're going to explain the two, how they're different, how they might be similar. And what are the truth and lies of, of hiring superstars? Do we want to recruit A plus talent or actually do we want to be recruiting average talent? These are some of the questions we will be answering today with the help of our wonderful expert guests. Our first guest is a friend of the show and I'm thrilled to have him back on. Uh, You'll remember him from our Business of Family episode. It is, of course, Ryan Sherman. Ryan is Chief Science Officer at Hogan Assessment Systems. Uh, He's an expert in personality assessment, leadership and organisational effectiveness. He is co-host of the Science of Personality podcast um, and he's won lots of fancy awards for all the incredible psychologizing that he does. Let's psychologizing rem- like it. <laughs> Let's remind ourselves and be reintroduced to Ryan Sherman. So I am Hogan's chief science officer, uh, which means I run our data science division at Hogan. The data science division uh, really consists of maybe three different parts. One part where we do custom research for clients, helping clients find personality-based solutions that fit their specific needs Uh, job roles or whatever they may be. All of the data that we gather, all the research and studies that we do, keeping those organized um, so that we're just always accumulating more knowledge and and keeping that at our fingertips is a really important part of what I do or what what my teams do. And our next guests are Martin Solway and Fidel Torriero. I think I've said that right, Fidel. I'm sorry. I should have practiced it before we actually pressed record. Fidel and Martin have over 40 years combined experience in various roles in the energy and pharmaceutical sectors. They've both got an MBA. Fancy, fancy. Uh, One of them, I think Fidel's is from Henley Business School and Martin from the Warwick Business School. They're qualified and practicing coaches and together they founded the Audax Generation, which is a fantastic business which creates immersive experiences for teams. Let's go meet Martin and Fidel. My name is Martin Solway, uh, so I'm a co-founder with Fidel here of the, the Audax Generation, uh, which we started uh, about two years ago. Um, my background, so I've been in, in, corporate, so in the corporate world, in the energy sector for about uh, 20 years, um, doing different roles and uh, went on a coaching course and, uh, and, and found Fidel and we got talking about interest. Uh, and curiosity around uh, unlocking people's potential um, and saw an opportunity around uh, teams, uh, which uh, I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about uh, today. So. And hi, this is Fidel. Um, and yes, everything that Martin said applies to me. Um, but instead of um, energy, my background is in pharmaceuticals, uh, long experience working in corporate with, with many teams. So all different shapes and forms and locations. So Martin and Fidel co-founded the Audax Generation in 2021 and they are on a mission to unlock teams' potential. Um, So yeah, they work with individuals, teams, organisations to bolster purpose and remain future fit. Let's hear more about Audax Generation. So we work with with teams, with um, various organisations, from kind of startups through to big uh, corporates. Uh, and uh, essentially what we do is we work with them uh, u- utilizing coaching. So our, really our philosophy is, is that uh, we believe that you know, every team is, is made up of individuals who are unique. Um, and then we do uh, workshops as well. And our, our workshops uh, are slightly different uh, in, term, in, in regards that they, uh, we really wanted to uh, disrupt as well um, the way we do things. So we use metaphors uh, where we've partnered with uh, different uh, teams 
um, in different countries as well. So uh, we've partnered with uh, teams such as what's called the Cassiers in, in Catalonia, um, who do these amazing human talents, uh, a rowing club uh, here locally in Oxfordshire, uh, and uh, uh, so an aerobatics uh, display team as, as well. So to really, uh, to give some fun, in terms of uh, for teams to come along together, uh, but to really challenge their thinking uh, and and push them to say, look, you know, you can achieve amazingly, seemingly impossible things. Human towers. I tell you what, if you if you want to see some crazy pictures, go to the Audax Generation <laughs> website. Mm-hmm. There's <clears throat> there's towers of people, hundreds of people high. I'm sure. Um, I still don't know how they do it without with health and safety and all that. Because someone fell off the top, that's going to hurt. I I I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure they'll tell us if we ask them. I'm sure they will. <laughs> so we'll hear more from Ryan, Martin and Fidel shortly. But first, it's our favourite time of the week. It is the News Roundup. Yay! <laughs> if, you, if this is your first News Roundup segment, then lucky you. Ooh, you're in for a treat. You've got about six and a half minutes of Leanne telling you what's happened in the world of people and culture this week. In her own inimitable, that's a difficult word to say, in her own style. I'll leave it there. <laughs> Over to you, Leah. Best advice from a teacher just reminded me. I've never been very good at spelling. And my English teacher, this back in the day, we had to write. My English A-level had to actually write, not type. And she said to me, if you don't know how to spell a word, pick a different one. <laughs> I, wish I wish I had a teacher like that. Say like, if you don't know how to say a word, pick a different one. Anyway, news roundup. Something has been brought to my attention. Okay. We have a new word. Or phrase really bare minimum Monday. I think it, I think I have a feeling it is what it says on the tin. Um, but yeah, this was a, a TikTok creator called Marissa Joe who went viral, um, picked up by ABC News and everything by speaking about this phrase on a series of posts. And I think this is an example of where you know we might see a headline of of Gen Zs want bare minimum Mondays and be like, how god damn it, how dare you not want to work on a Monday? not saying that what marissa is saying is rather than overwhelm yourself on a monday and create this sense of dread going into into a monday morning which is actually a a signal of burnout potentially so be mindful um but it's actually let's make set ourselves some realist expectations let's try and set ourselves tasks that either are gonna set up our week or provide us for energy for the rest of our week it seems like a sensible way of managing work and time to me there's a there's a great book called the one thing by gary something i will try and link to it in the in the show notes um and it's basically saying look when you start off every single day you go what's the one thing i have to do today in order to achieve the one thing I'm going to do this week and the one thing I'm going to do this month and the one thing I'm going to do this quarter, et cetera, et cetera. I am making a hash of the way that he's, he's, he's basically described this, but it is a brilliant book. And it's essentially that going, look, what's your, what's the priority? Because there's a couple of weird things. There's another book called um, Eat That Frog by Brian Tracy, I think. And it's basically saying, look, do the worst thing on your to-do list first. And then you go, if I just do nothing else, I've done that one thing which is cool for two reasons. First, we've got rid of the horrible thing. He talks about easily analogy of eating, swallowing a frog. Um, if you do that one thing, but then it also you kind of go, oh, that wasn't so bad. So now I might as well do the other two or three things on my list. And it's just, yeah, it just works. What else you got, Leah? 
Uh, well, as you well know, it is Women's History Month at the moment. Um, and I've saw a couple of things pop up this week around the, the gender pay gap and pay transparency. Uh, there's some new re- research that's been done. An organisation called Vizia, they looked at over 50 million employee records, so a pretty big sample here. Um, and we're still, we're still showing a pay equity gap. And sadly, that seems to be getting worse. So in 2017, women were paid roughly 85 cents on the dollar compared to their male counterparts. Um, and as of 2023, that has fallen from 85 cents to 84 cents. That might not feel significant, but obviously we do not want these things to trend downwards. One potential solution that has been talked about as well is around pay disclosure laws that are currently coming into place across the USA in various states basically saying that if you advertise a job you have to say how much money you're going to pay that person sounds fairly straightforward but organizations are very apprehensive to do this because of course if they can negotiate lower salaries for some people whatever they're women or not then they aren't going to save money but as the world of work is changing this strategy may no longer be sustainable because we are finding out in terms of how pay transparency influences applicant behavior 82 percent of u.s workers are more likely to consider applying for a job if the pay range is listed that's a good point that's a good point so pay transparency what else we got leah Finally, I came across an article in the Wall Street Journal this week, which is talking about having, um, as a cure for quiet quitting, do we need collaborators or do we need rivals? And I thought this fit in quite nicely with our conversation today. So what they're basically saying is that if we have a colleague who is vying for the same promotion as us or a peer that's pushing us to outperform, is that going to improve our our um, sense of motivation, therefore our sense of belonging, therefore our organisational commitment and reduce our tendencies to quiet quit. But how do we create healthy rivalry in teams and how do we balance that? And the answer seemed to be from the, the most recent research is that we need to develop what is called a shared group identity with your competitors so it's kind of what you've already said about sales teams are you know you've got you've got your own agenda and you've got your own targets you want to hit but ultimately you're all working towards the same goal so researchers tried to look into this and and they did a really cool experiment with video games so people played like two rounds where you could win cash prizes um and you either won for attacking enemies um, or defending your territory and in round one other players were on your team and in round two the other players were your competitors so they were trying to figure out what came, what comes first cooperation or competition does it matter so what they found is that if in the first round people competed with with each other then in the second round it was really really difficult for them to work as a team um, they were pretending to get along but they still kind of hoarded key information for themselves but the opposite was true in the other way around so if they if they were a team first and then competed um, then that shift was much more much more comfortable um, and it did kind of turn into this kind of adoption of, of partner-friendly rivalry. So I think it's interesting from a business perspective that if you are looking to create this healthy rivalry, it's actually starting with with like prioritizing the team relationships first and then kind of looking at a kind of competitive side of it rather than, than the competition first. I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you very much for the news roundup, Leanne. You're welcome. So let's get back into the main show. We have a series of questions that we wanted to answer in this one. So first of all, I, I want to know what is the superstar effect and is it different to a toxic superstar? Then we, we want to look into what the truth and lies are of hiring superstars 
Once we've hired them, how do we manage them? And then actually, should we even be recruiting superstars at all? Should we even be looking for superstar talent? Should we just be going for average talent? And finally, all around the teams, why is it important to shift our focus from individual to team performance? How do we build these diverse teams? And the last question, which is one from Tom, is how do we protect the culture as we grow? Yes, lots of interesting questions today and some answers that may seem a little counterintuitive. So let's dive in with the superstar effect. It seems reasonable to think that recruiting superstars or A-plus talent is another kind of popular phrase that's used. It seems reasonable to think if we recruit these people, it's going to improve our performance of our teams, of our business and generate some healthy rivalry, right? Ah, so that doesn't make sense. So what exactly is this superstar effect? Here's Ryan to explain. So the superstar effect is this sort of uh, strange phenomenon where when you bring in a superstar or hire a superstar, you would think that it would raise the level of your team, right? That your team would dramatically improve. And the superstar effect is the situation where you're bringing in that superstar actually degrades the performance of those who are around, right? So it actually <laughs> lowers the team performance. And there's some clear examples of this in, in the world of sports, um, and in some cases, they don't hurt your team. They actually help your team. But, but I'll, I'll sort of differentiate that here in a second. So one example from the world of sports is, is Tiger Woods. When Tiger Woods um, sort of emerged on the golf scene, he was so dominant and he's winning so many tournaments that um, and there were some researchers who've done a bunch of analyses of golfers who played with Tiger Woods. Um, that it turns out that just playing with Tiger Woods or playing in the same tournament where Tiger Woods was playing, people actually scored worse on average when he was in the tournament, right? So just his presence alone put enough pressure on people that they, that they performed worse. But there are cases where you bring a superstar onto your team and it actually degrades the performance of those people who are around because they feel more nervous, they feel more pressure, they feel um, that they have to step up in a way uh, to show that they're a superstar as well. There's a whole host of factors that go on psychologically when, when a superstar gets added to a team. Um, and so that's one of the, that's one of the, the sort of ironies about a superstar effect. You might think that, oh, you know, by adding Tiger Woods to the field, um, that's going to sort of raise everyone's level. They're going to feel like, oh, we have to play even better and we're going to be more challenged and they're going to play even better. But in fact, it's the opposite, right? People, um, try too much or they push for too much and, and they get worse. And the same thing can happen on our, on our own, um, our own teams as well, right? That's really interesting because if you think back to, for example, Mad Men, one of my favorite TV series, when Peggy comes in and just Peggy is just incredible as a copywriter, um, then yeah, you would expect, oh, well, everyone else is going to, is going to rise above. But then there's that kind of thing called the tall poppy syndrome, isn't it? Where mm-hmm. apparently poppies, were, if, if a poppy grows too tall, then the other poppies sort of strangle it and bring it down. I don't know whether that's true. I heard it from Tony Robbins when I was walking on fire about 15 years ago. Um, but <laughs> but the, <laughs> this, this idea um, that it doesn't necessarily sort of translate, which is really counterintuitive. Yeah, I mean, it does. It seems intuitive, doesn't it? That in the presence of greatness, we're going to feel inspired and we're going to feel motivated. But as Ryan says that, that is not not the case. It's the opposite. So what's happening in our psychology that in some circumstances, we're actually reacting negatively to the superstar? What's going on? I asked Ryan his thoughts based on both his research and his experience. Uh, there's another interesting case where with uh, this chess player, Magnus Carlsen, uh, where basically because of computers, you can analyze every move and you can decide if this was the right move or the wrong move, or, or you can actually sort of quanti- quantify the quality of that move. Was that how, how, how good was that move uh, in, in a sort of quantitative uh, way? But sometimes Magnus makes a bad move 
and people fall into the trap of assuming it must be a good move because Magnus, who's the world champion, uh, because he made that move, it must be good. And so they don't take advantage of the the mistakes that he makes because they think that he must see deeper than they do. So they look at it and they go, hmm, it looks like to me like a bad move. But if he played it, it must actually be a good move. And I've got to figure out why. And, and it ends up actually playing sort of into his advantage, even when he makes those mistakes. So, so that's part of it is that, that, right. We sort of psych ourselves out, right. We, we, um, fool ourselves into, into thinking about things in a, in a different way when that super, when that superstar is nearby. This is really interesting. And I think I've seen this in action. I used to have a web design agency um, and I used to go and look at some of the other creative design agencies' websites and go, oh my God, that's amazing. Look at how it scrolls horizontally and how the mouse point has got a little something that follows it and whatever. <laughs> I used to think, oh my God, I'm never going to be as good as these guys. When actual fact just because they were a creative agency, their website was probably a bit shit. <laughs> it was really difficult to use. and But I assumed it was just brilliant because they were crea- a creative agency and they were above me. Yeah, and I think that's a funny thing, isn't it? We attach so much prestige and admiration to people who are experts or phenomenal or kind of leaders in their field. But, we're, you know, we can forget sometimes that they're human. <laughs> they too make mistakes as well. Um, so, yeah, and, and it's interesting, isn't it? So what does that mean for for our teams then because we do hear a lot about businesses um you know taking that approach to a plus talent teams of superstars so what impact does the superstar effect have on our business ryan explains that there are several possible impacts maybe some of the talent will leave some of the talent will go oh geez i'm not as valued here maybe i'll go somewhere else um others uh, uh other examples that, that we see happening um in the United States, many years ago in the 1960s, there was sort of an event known as the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, which was kind of a disaster. Well, that, that event was kind of successful, but prior to that was the sort of the Bay of Pigs, um, sort of a attempted coup uh, of, of Cuba that was really put together by what people thought of at the time as this group of geniuses, right? The United States had created this between John Kennedy and several members of the cabinet that had created this sort of... Um, super think group, right? That this group knew more than anybody else. They were the smartest people and they were brilliant strategists. And basically we can do no wrong because we have so much talent gathered together. And that's not the trap that we can fall into with the superstar effect. We can go, well, we've got so much talent that whatever decision we make must be a good decision, right? And you can actually fall into this trap called groupthink where you all go, oh yeah, this must be a good decision because we came up with it. And that can happen you know, if you have a superstar or even multiple superstars, again, people might not question the superstar's idea, right? You bring in a new superstar, the new superstar says we should do this. Even if sort of fundamentally you go, boy, I don't know if that makes any sense in our business. Um, we, we tend to go, well, but this person's a superstar, so let's, let's go with what they have to say. So we, we tend to not question or push back as much against them, which can lead into the trap of, of um, sort of uh, making, making pretty serious blunders. Uh, as an organization. But you didn't think that we'd, been, we'd be talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis in this <laughs> podcast episode. I couldn't know. I couldn't know. I could not have anticipated that. But yeah, I think it's an interesting example. And I think, you know, we see this in all sorts of of groups. You know, it's almost as well as kind of diffusion of responsibility. Um, that's kind of a socio-psychological term where a person is basically less likely to take responsibility um, for 
action or inaction when there are other bystanders or, or witnesses president, uh, present. So if we have these other experts with us, um, this diffusion of responsibility is, as um, Carl says, to kind of react or intervene um, is significantly reduced. And what's also interesting as well, this is one of the big um, criticisms of, of creating psychologically safe environments, actually. We, you know, we always say there's no, there's no kind of absolute intervention or absolute thing to do it all comes with a well maybe it depends um but yes yeah, some research in psychological safety um found and this is from 2011 found that psychological safety can also incubate unethical behavior as there is a lower fear of being judged makes sense because if you if everyone's got a voice and it's okay to say your opinion then you might be more inclined to, to be a little bit more unethical um because you know the, everyone's got your back so mm -hmm. they're looking after you so we were going back to martin and fidel we asked them their thoughts on recruiting the superstars martin explained that in their research and their experience that they that approaching teams as a whole rather than a, individuals in a team is a great starting place and we've developed a kind of audacious team dna uh, if you like so when we look at um you know and to be an audacious team partner uh there's four key things that uh, that we look at um at that then we we work with teams on uh, as well around a, a thinking framework that we we've uh, developed um and essentially the first thing is is being all purposeful so we found that to be an effective team, uh, the common trait there is that they have a very clear purpose. Um, and not only do they have a very clear purpose, but the individuals within that team are aligned to that purpose. So their individual purpose is aligned to the, to the team purpose. So that's number one. Um, the second thing is that they're bold. So, you know, they're not, they're not afraid to try new things. Um, they're not afraid to, to fail, you know, that they, they will experiment and they create an environment as well, uh, where they can challenge each other, um, and, and they can, you know, they can really try new things. Uh, the third is being curious. So being curious about uh, each other within the team. I think this is sometimes often missed, uh, in, in large organizations. We assemble a team and we immediately get on with the project in hand instead of learning about each other and how we can really leverage uh, the strengths, the superpowers that each individual brings. Um, and obviously if we don't, if we're not curious about each other to start with, then we're not going to, to uh, understand uh, how each other works and what the, what the superpowers are. And then lastly, uh, is uh, diversity. So, you know, how, you know, being a diverse team, uh, being inclusive, uh, where, you know, everybody is allowed to, to join, but more importantly, tapping into that diversity as well. Um, so it's a really, creating an environment, you know, the terms uh, that lots of people use around psychological safety, but, you know, really creating that environment uh, that uh, that people can uh, express their ideas and their diversity of thought um, and, and bring to the tables. I think that's a really useful kind of overarching way to look at it is rather than necessarily think about recruiting individuals that are going to contribute to performance, how do we, how do we, structure our teams how do we nurture our teams to perform you know as superstars collectively i think that's a really really great starting place to think about it yeah and i think the idea of having a shared martin just said there there was boldness shared purpose diversity and curiosity well if you're a superstar already you're probably not curious anymore because you think that you know it all um shared purpose well, no you're probably just looking to be right <laughs> so you're yeah. so you're already 50 percent of that you, you're out so um so you can see why uh, why you might have problems integrating a, a superstar into a team of i don't want to say non-superstars but just average people like me 
So Fidel went on to explain that thinking about teams in this way is helpful for leaders when they're looking to leverage the talent of every team member to achieve the performance objectives. And in this context, you need to ask yourself, as a leader, what does A-plus talent or superstars look like for me in my business? Here's Fidel to explain more. The thing is that what is an A-plus talent? And one could say, well, A-plus talent is someone that is a high achiever, is, a, is someone that in a previous organization, in a previous role, uh, has done something that is uh, remarkable. It could be something that someone that is very knowledgeable, uh, technically uh, knows it all. So it's not about himself or herself. It's about how do I leverage these unique talents that each one of my team members have. So. If we are talking about this, about this people, this type of, of personality, we want many of them because in a way, this A plus talent, what is going to do is to make the team better. It's going to push the team. It's going to make the team uh, feel this connection to the purpose, feel the belonging, feel the psychological safety that, that Martin was taking, uh, talking about to, to express themselves to put their ideas forward. So we want more of, more of those. Martin also has some thoughts on what it means to be a, a team of superstars in the world of work in 2023. So high-performance teams and how to get high-performance teams comes up a lot. Uh, and interestingly, I think, uh, so a lot of academics recently, um, you know, especially in the kind of team coaching space, which uh, obviously we're, we're very active in, um, so, uh, there's people out there like Peter Hawkins, uh, et cetera, actually trying to, who, who promoted high performance teams, um, and are actually changing, uh, track a little bit and talking about adding, added value teams. And really what that means is that, you know, cause high performance, if you're a team and you want to be high performing, then that, that instantly creates competition. So I think there's a change in thinking as well to say, well, actually, is that the right approach or do we want teams that actually add value to other teams uh, outside of their own teams? And I, and I think that applies to both the team and then also individuals within the team. So, you know, we talk a lot about uh, kind of superstars and then high performing teams and you're having super teams, but actually in our experience, uh, the best teams are, are the ones that, you know, don't necessarily have the superstars that, that you know, are really able to, to crack it. Sometimes the, the superstar teams, if you like, are the ones that, that have the biggest challenge to, to really be a high-performing team. It is an interesting shift, and we're seeing that in culture as well. Rather than talking about culture fit, we're talking about culture add. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's, a, it's an important shift that, that's happening. Um, so interesting to hear that it is also happening um, in the world of team coaching as well. But before we dive further into teams, let's take it back to the individual. So we now know what the superstar effect is. But there is another term that's used in psychology, um, which you may have heard of, and that is toxic superstars. So what are toxic superstars? How can we spot them? And what does it mean for an organization and its performance? Here's Ryan. When we're talking about superstars, we really are talking about top performers, right? People who are really um, generating lots of productivity and revenue for, for the organization. But of course, there is this sort of scenario of, of toxic superstars. And you see that, again, it's very frequent. You see that in sports, right, or in athletics, where some superstar comes in with a, with a pretty large ego, you know, big expectations, and kind of ruins the organization because um, 
know, they forget that in many cases, these are team events and that you have to get along with your team to, to be successful. Um, and so, so yeah, that, that is a sort of a, a little separate category where you can be a superstar in terms of your talent, um, but sort of toxic in, in terms of those interpersonal behaviors. And that's to sort of go back to one of the earlier topics, what, what personality is all about, right? So in some respects, it's very easy to evaluate, uh, you know, someone's productivity talents, right? You know, I just like in athletics, they measure all kinds of things about people, you know, how far you can throw, how fast you can run, how hard you can kick. All of those kinds of things are very, easy easy to measure um the, the more challenging thing to measure is how are you going to get along with the other people that you work with and, and that's what personality is really all about it's the same thing in the in the business world right so we can see where did you get your degree from uh, how many years of experience do you have uh, which you know uh, mega corporations or jobs have you had in the past right all of those kinds of things are really easy right what to, to sort of measure up what are your qualifications in that regard but how you're going to get along with other people turns out to be really, really important. And it's it's just a lot trickier to measure than just looking at somebody's resume. All of this, we're getting to the juice of it now. Personality and behavior. I was When I was re-listening back to Ryan, I was thinking about PJ Brady from last week, um, who was talking about the difference between Nelson Mandela and Donald Trump. You know, both very ambitious people manifested in very, very different ways. And it's the same with employees, especially people we're tagging as superstars. How do you know if you're recruiting a Mandela or a Trump? And if we don't dive deeper into the psychology of applicants, uh, we, we might not know at all. And this is where psychometrics can play a really useful part in helping us to understand how people get on with other people, how they'll interact within our business. Now, typically, psychometrics will help us find the risk factors but there are also some moderating traits and behaviors, aspects of our personality that help us to enact or choose behaviors that are more positive and effective in working together um, and getting the job done. I'm not going to dive too much now at the moment in terms of kind of the risk factors of personality and how they're moderated. We talk about this a lot on a couple of the episodes and I will link them in the show notes. So I asked Ryan, what is perhaps an example of a moderating factor or moderating behavior that we can observe in superstars that are going to suggest they are more likely to work effectively with our teams and within our organization? Well, so a few things that seem to show up are one is, is really good coaching, right? So um, if you have a coach who can sort of get that superstar to cooperate with, with, with the other folks, that seems to be to be really valuable. So one of the things that we talk about from a personality standpoint is something known as coachability. Um, that is, some people are just more coachable than others. Some people listen to feedback. Some people adopt feedback. They take that feedback right away and they try to incorporate that um, to improve their performance. Other people go, no, I don't need your feedback. No, thanks. I already know what I'm doing. I'm better than you. I know more than you do. And uh, that turns out to be a, a huge individual difference in, in terms of how teams end up performing, particularly when you bring in a superstar. So that's one of the things that I would be looking for in bringing in superstars is how coachable are they? If they're a superstar, but they're uncoachable, they're just going to do their own thing. They're going to do whatever they want. Maybe it'll be successful. Maybe it'll be a failure. But um, if you've got a superstar and they're coachable, then right, if you have real talent, right, you know, just like sheer cognitive capacity can solve all kinds of problems, can understand markets and, and can sort of almost see the future in some respects and they're coachable, then, then you have real potential from a business standpoint. 
So all I could think about when Ryan was talking there was Steve Jobs, like incredible person, but just wouldn't, he's totally uncoachable. He's like, no, everyone wants the iPhone. It's like, well, what evidence have you got for that? Well, I know. And the fact is, he did know, and he was a genius. But also, he didn't really talk about Lisa, the, the, the computer that he released when he left Apple, that was dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> it was awful. It looked horrible. It was horrible to use, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, he's not a coachable. And I love this idea that if you are amazing and you're coachable, then this is like a key factor in turning an individual superstar into someone who's going to be part of an amazing team. Fidel agrees. I am quickly interrupting this phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast, Nudge. We love Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, a true gent. It is, of course, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. But that is not the only reason we're recommending it, is it, Al? No, it's not. No, we've recommended it to lots of people. If you look at any of our YouTube comments, it won't take you long, there's about 20 of them, <laughs> then you'll see that we recommend Phil uh, to anyone who likes our pod. Well, on Nudge, you're going to learn simple evidence-backed tips. It's going to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, and grow a business. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. For now. For now, Phil, we're coming for you, buddy. <laughs> if you loved hearing Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on our show back in episode 83, then Phil's latest episode has Rory on again talking about McDonald's, smoking, and why the pension system is broken. I suppose we should say that actually Rory's been on a couple of times on to nudge. It's not that uh, Phil's seen what we've done and gone, I'll have Rory. So I think it's important. Yeah, for no, us to we say copied. That. We copied Phil. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. How do you help this person to uh, become more aware that it's not about him or her? Or how do you help the team to become more aware that actually maybe with this high performer we can win a game, but we are not going to win the league. Because to win the league, we, we need the team. And, and this is this type of, of experience. So one of the exercises that we are going to do always and with anything is going to be about purpose and about talents. The, the, those unique uh, hidden talents, those superpowers. And what we are trying to align here is, you know, what is the direction of traveling? Where are we going? And making sure that everyone understands that. So effectively, we don't know each other very well. And because we don't know each other very, very well, one is probably you don't have the level of um, of understanding, the level of um, even caring about the person. But two, you cannot leverage that. But but I, I think those those simple activities should happen uh, all the time, um, and and I say all, all the time, or we say all the time, because. Again, we recognize that teams are a dynamic, a fluid entity, and people come and go, projects change, and, and so you really need to continuously readjust. So if I've understood Fidel correctly there, what we're talking about there is if someone is self-aware, then they are A, easier to, to coach, but B, also be aware of or have the awareness of what other people in their team have got the superpowers. And so therefore, the whole team can become amazing. Yeah, I agree. I think it is that exactly what you said. They're probably more like to engage in more authentic relationships, find out more about their their peers and, and their colleagues, what their strengths are, um, and then leverage those for the, the overall good of, of the team. So it is, you know, what I think what we're kind of 
surmising from everything. Surmising, is that a word? It is, it's a fancy word. I don't know, it might be the first time I've ever used that in a sentence. So I guess what we're surmising from this is that yes, we can have superstars, but they're going to have to be coachable, otherwise they might cause more trouble than they're worth. And actually, what is a superstar? Do we just want somebody who is coachable, self-aware, brings their own skills um, and engages authentically with, with others that are team players? So if I'm hearing this correctly, then it sounds like superstars are really tough to manage unless they are coachable, which my gut instinct says that there's a fewer who are coachable than, 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 than the, the majority. So... What's the message here? Do we stop recruiting these superstars and just recruit average talent instead? Is mediocrity this new superpower? We asked Ryan. Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, right? So the, there are certainly advantages that superstars bring, right? I mean, if, I think if you look at um, you know, other sort of sporting outlets like... Um, like the NBA has a long tradition of if you, if you hire a superstar, the, the, uh, your, your wins and loss record can totally turn around, right? So uh, Le- LeBron James is a clear example of that with variety of teams that he's gone to has turned them from big losers to big winners just by adding him to the team. So so there, there are real advantages to, to having superstars as well. But what I would say, and there's, there's some research on this done by some, some economists actually, a, a beautiful paper, all about personality where uh, they, they look at, um, in this case, they're looking actually at the opposite, they're looking at toxic workers. And what they've done is they've actually gone to a bunch of organizations. They've quantified, you know, sort of worker, uh, whether this person's a superstar or, or worker toxicities, it's a person that's sort of a toxic worker. And then they've actually quantified what's the value to the organization of the, these different individuals. And what they found was that in the best case scenario, um, Getting rid of a toxic worker was worth hiring four superstars. So think about the value that a superstar brings to your organization. And you would need to hire four superstars to make up for one really toxic, bad worker, right? One worker who's creating, you know, creating disengagement among the organization, who's really down talking the organization, who is sort of uh, uninspiring. Uh, you know, to, to, to use sort of, I don't know if that's a made up term, um, but, but, but it's sort of actively, uh, um, destroying the organization from within, um, that you're better off getting rid of that person than hiring, than, than hiring four superstars. You would need to hire four superstars to make up for, for that. And that's in the best case scenario. Other estimates suggest 12, that it's a 12 to one ratio. You would need to hire 12 superstars to make up for that one toxic worker. So, um, uh, so it's not so much, I would say, well, avoid hiring superstars, but I would actually say that you get more bang for your buck by looking out for those who are or have the potential to to toxify your your workplace. That's that's an unbelievable bit of research, that isn't it? So just to just to kind of really bring that point home, you would need to hire four superstars minimum, four superstars to make up for one really toxic worker in terms of everything culture and performance that's just it it's it when you hear it like that like it, it's as a business leader it makes toxicity completely unacceptable within your business and that's not just even from a human perspective and you know the you know in, in making sure that we're protecting culture but it's just bad for business so can i just ask so just we've talked a lot about sort of average talent toxic superstar superstar and now when, when Ryan's talking about the toxicity there, is he talking about a toxic superstar? Or is he talking about a toxic normal? Potentially both. 
Right. So superstars and and norms like me, I'm a normal, I'm not a superstar. Um, we we all have the the potential to be toxic if we find ourselves in an environment that for whatever reason isn't isn't matching our values or expectations or there's there's other things going on. Um, you know, unless we are have some kind of clinical psychopathology going on, then it's probably just you know a case of our own, our environment. But um, but yeah, we all have the the potential to be toxic, and these you know these toxic behaviors can manifest in all sorts of ways. I guess the most obvious one is bullying. Right. Bullying is a very toxic behavior that that you know translates very quickly to a, a toxic culture. What we mean by toxic culture is when these these tolerated negative behaviors are impacting how people think and feel about the organization in the worst possible way. That makes sense. So I, I think where we're at now Hopefully I'm with the listener now, learning as we go along. But the whole idea now is that we now know that we've got superstars, we've got normal, and we've got toxicity, which both of these people can fall into. Um, so what do we need to do within our recruitment practice to recruit great talent that's going to result in high performance, but isn't going to result in either toxicity or this superstar effect? Yes, and I asked this exact question to Ryan. Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, obviously, the the first thing that everybody does is they they take a look at your resume. They take a look at um, that, that that sort of um, sort of raw talent, I guess, kind of factors, right? Um, but I think to, to me, the 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 more important thing to do once you've evaluated that, once you said, okay, this person's clearly qualified. This person has a ton of strengths that they would bring to our organization in terms of their knowledge, their background, their experience. The next thing I think that you want to do is understand, okay, is this person going to uh, be coachable? Is this person going to ruin our organization with with a sort of toxic uh, personality or some set of personality characteristics that basically rub people the wrong way, that, that, that cause a lot of interpersonal friction? Um, and so the only way to do that is to use a, a really uh, good uh, a scientifically based personality assessment. I mean, and I would want one that... that goes to a pretty extensive depth, right? I, I wouldn't want one that's like, you know, just going to give me four terms or, or four scores. I want something that's going to go into a, a lot of depth because I really want to understand how is this person in total going to fit with this organization? Again, what are the things that they might do that might annoy or irritate somebody who's in my organization right now? And how can we remedy that? And, and again, that uh, question I mentioned earlier, how coachable is this person? You can actually pick that up from from the right combination of scales on a personality assessment um, and think, okay, uh, are we going to be able to coach this person? And is this person going to be able to fit with with where we're going in, in the future? And, and all of that shows up in the personality assessment. You're not going to see that on the resume. Personality assessments really do give you such a a different view of, of somebody's experience and, and behavior. And I know the clients that I've worked with are, are usually quite, they, I guess I think some of them think it's some kind of crystal ball. And you're like, how did you know that? It's like, because they told me they filled in a psychometrics and we, you know, we worked together to, to understand it. There's, but it, it's these tools that can pull out these things from people that they might not be as willing to put on their resume um, or, or say in an interview or even given the opportunity to. So yeah, so psychometrics are a really good way of, of kind of enhancing your, your recruitment practice and the effectiveness of those. So we know that we can use personality to assess how somebody will perform in a particular role and within the wider organisation or the team. But what's the risk factor here? I asked Ryan, is there a danger that we're going to recruit people into our businesses that are just like us, simply because they're going to be easier to get on with? 
that, that's a, it's a question we get all the time, right? So one of the questions is, well, wait a minute, isn't personality assessment, isn't that just creating clones, right? You're just saying you just want to clone your really productive workers uh, and that's it. You just, you just want little clones inside your organization. And that's actually not true. In fact, personality assessments are the thing that really sort of celebrate how individually different we all are that say we're all different in, in, in particular ways. Typically what will happen in, in a, with a, with a typical client, like let's say that it's a, it's a role where um, safety is critical, right? Where we, we know we don't want people who take risks. We don't want people who, um, who skirt around the edges um, and, and personality predicts really well the, the kinds of people who are going to do those kinds of things. And, and it's okay to take risks. It's okay to skirt around edges. It's just not okay to do in certain jobs. Right. And so, so um, the, the, the point is that for, for that particular characteristic, that it's critical for the job. We know that that's an important part of the job. It's really uh, critical for the company to have people who, who uh, behave in a way that's like that in that job. We might select on that one characteristic, but, um, you know, in our own assessments, there's more than 100 characteristics that we evaluate. Um, and so we might be selecting on one or two or three characteristics for a particular role, but all of the other characteristics are allowed to vary um, and it doesn't really matter. You can be very talkative and very sociable, or you can be very quiet and very shy. But if it's not relevant for that job role, then that's okay. We don't we don't select for for people on that. So it doesn't create the situation where you have a lot of clones. In fact, it creates a situation where you have a lot of diversity. What you have is is cloned on the thing that's really really critical for the job, which is really related to job performance. But everything else is, is allowed to vary. A couple of things I think I want to I want to kind of pick up on what Ryan said there. One, he's making it very clear that we are choosing we're analyzing personality traits that are going to predict job performance. So when recruiting, think to yourself, do I need somebody who is extroverted and talkative and, and chatty and, you know, going to bring lots of energy to the team if their job actually requires them to be very analytical and reflective? And and I think this is sometimes a trap that businesses get into and, and why some of them struggle to to find, in inverted commas, great talent is because they're looking for for candidates that either don't exist in the world um, or there's no reason to ask for those traits and those qualities to do that job. And this disconnect just kind of completely weakens the impact of our, our job advert and our, our employer brand in the market. And I think the second thing there as well, as you know, Ryan said that personality assessments help us celebrate how individually different we are. I would like to paraphrase that or change that slightly. Good personality assessments celebrate how individually different we are. And this is why I have beef with Myers-Briggs for any kind of recruitment strategy, because there are only 16 types with a you know, trait-based personality inventory, like um, you know, the, the types that Hogan have developed. There are an infinite number of, of possibilities and combinations of, of traits and how individual people are, as Ryan explained. Um, putting people in a box of 16 is not celebrating individual differences. It's not celebrating breaking uh, diversity um, and at very best you're probably cloning people that are just like you. So the opposite of clones is having diversity. So with so many stats out there saying my business will do better with more diverse team, how easy is it actually for business owners to recruit for diversity? We all talk about diversity, we all talk about inclusion, we all talk about equality and I think uh, we are still not being able in general to leverage the diversity that we have in our teams. Our interest is more on the diversity from a, a thinking perspective. So your diversity of thought that is influenced by your experiences, your life, your family, your values, etc., etc. 
and and it, it starts from there from the recruitment stage. So what happens in the end is that through our our recruitment process, probably unintentionally, what we are trying to uh, to promote are values and behaviors that are exactly the same as the ones that we have in the organization. So that is opposite to diversity to me. I use the word intent a lot on this podcast. And I think this is another example of intention. What, you know, having a clear intention as a leader being really important. Yes, we can read a study and see that diversity translates to all sorts of benefits within our organization, creativity, innovation, um, performance. But again, it's digging into that. It's not to say if we recruit X number of black people, X number of women, X number of of neurodiverse people. Therefore, we will have a diverse culture and it'll all work and we'll reap the benefits of this performance. It's not, that's not the, the kind of the point. The point is, is by embracing diversity, by structuring your organization to recruit diverse people and diverse thinkers, then in that way, we're also going to be doing the, the things we need to do to create this psychological safety. And it's that psychological safety that enables people to bring their whole self to work, their whole identity. And that's what then translates into this diversity of thought um, and then these, these performance gains. I think as well, and if this sounds really overwhelming and really intangible and I get it, I think it's, it's Fidel kind of rightly pointed out there, start with recruitment. Recruitment practices are the easiest things to get right within your business because it's a science and it's tried and tested processes. Yet there are so many things that we are doing probably unconsciously um, and we don't realize it. They're excluding people from applying to our organization, the, the you know, types of diversity we want in our organization. For example, I was, um, I was talking to a colleague and they said to me, did you know that if at the bottom of your Um, job description that you're advertising, you simply put um, candidates who do not meet all criteria are still encouraged to apply. And what they found is doing that one thing saw a massive uptick in the number of women and people of colour that applied to that job. Something really simple, um, but but, had a massive impact. Yeah. And I think this is really overwhelming for someone who just goes, I just want someone to come and do the thing so I can, I can carry on growing my business. So it is really overwhelming. And I think you, you made a good point there that, you know, if, if you've not done recruitment before, if you've done it a couple of times, you're like, well, do I need psychometrics? Can I not just stick an ad in the paper? Um, but then you also, when you start doing a bit more, you get more into the nitty gritty and you go, hmm, yeah, maybe I'm not attracting as diverse a team as I want, but then you can go too far and go, right, well, I absolutely need someone who's from Indochina. I absolutely need someone who's neurodiverse. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of a minefield for, for the normals like us who just go, I just want someone, you know, a really good team. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it is, which is why I think starting with recruitment and just the, the very transactional aspects of it can be really helpful. As simple as where do you advertise your jobs? Do you, you know, there are plenty of job boards out there that will, you know, that have communities of people of, of colour or neurodiverse people that are more than likely going to use these job boards as a, as a resource. Are you just advertising on LinkedIn? Mm. In which case, that's probably not going to help you find this diversity of thought and talent. Um, and equally, you know, you said that it can be overwhelming. I just need someone to do this for me. Well, good news is we can. <laughs> that is one of the core services that we offer at, at our consultancy, Oblong. And the really cool thing about it as well is you only really need to do it once. Unless you then have a significant change in your business, like a merger and acquisition, 
everything's going to be fairly stable and just need tweaks. So it's one kind of, of intensive yet short, sharp project that's going to get all of your recruitment standardized, get it really robust, get you recruiting the right people, diverse people, um, and, and maybe the odd superstar. But if they are a superstar, they will be coachable, right? <laughs> yep, that's the rule. Um, if you are interested in, in getting Leanne to come and do something like that for you, then there's loads of links in the show notes of way. It's even a podcast, even an email, I think, that, uh, that you'll be able to contact Leanne and she'll tell you a bit more about that. So going back to this idea of recruitment, once we've got people there, how do we create a culture where everyone feels valued and heard and able to contribute in their own unique way? Here's Martin from Audax. Oftentimes, yeah, the best place is obviously to build a team uh, from scratch, but uh, that often isn't the case. Uh, so, you know, working with teams to uh, to really get uh, get the best out of themselves and uh, to, to create that culture. You know, it's starting off coming back to curiosity, really, and, and, and being bold. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's often, it's, it's a very simple thing, but we often kind of miss it, is is just taking the time, and this is the problem that we find in, you know, in busy organizations, is, is that we don't have the time. And so we're very busy doing lots of other things that we don't have the time to just spend getting to know each other, getting to know uh, each other as individuals, and then really exploring and saying, okay, you know, what can we do as, as a team? And in a way, that's why we use, um, yeah, so we've really thought long and hard about some of the metaphors that, uh, uh, that we've, we've chosen to really challenge teams in this way. So before we get into the nitty gritty and the projects, um, uh, is it, really, okay, let's take the time. How are we going to operate as a team? So, so what's, you know, what's it, first of all, let's be curious about, uh, each other. So what does everybody bring to the table? Uh, you know, and then, and then figure out, uh, in the knowledge that every team is unique and different. So, you know, one solution is, is not going to fit. You know, you've got to come up with your own solution and how you're going to work as a team. Uh, it is then, okay. What are the, the rules? If you like that, we, you know, we don't like rules too much, but, but you know, what are the, the ground rules that we're going to put in place for our own team? But, but what is it where, we can really leverage each other's uh, strengths, that we can have an environment where, you know, nobody feels uncomfortable to speak up, where everybody can, can speak up. But really taking the time, I think, to, to set those, those ground rules uh, and have that in place before, which we often see, you get, you know, a few months in and then issues start arising. Um, so I think it's really, you know, and, and you can do this along the journey as well. So obviously there's many teams that are already formed, but you know, taking that time to really, uh, you know, learn about each other and figure out how, uh, you know, now as a team, uh, we're going to operate uh, going forward. Martin shared there as well as actually a really good technique um, in terms of setting these ground rules um, in terms of your culture. So if we have these values, what do these behaviours look like? What is acceptable? What is not acceptable? And in terms of leadership as well, you know, these leadership charters, what are the ground rules? What does it mean to be a manager in this organisation? What behaviours are we encouraging? What behaviours are we are we absolutely not tolerating? And this all just helps people to, to not only kind of nurture these, these relationships, but also, as Martin says, build this psychological safety. Fidel's a big fan of psychological safety. And so he talks about how you can sort out your policies and ways of working to nurture that from day one. And I think, you know, um, the, the, the concept of psychological safety that, that Martin was explaining. Um, again, th th this is, this is uh, 
this is something that should come from the very beginning, from the psychological contract that we establish with a person even before before you sign your your contract. So this is the way that we operate here. This is a, a framework where we are able to challenge each other, and we we don't challenge the individual. We challenge the idea. We challenge the the the, the argument, the premise under under, under the argument. So in that way, we are really uh, being individuals that can challenge and be challenged without feeling hurt. We, through that, we we generate this creativity. We believe that the winning is about winning as a team. The reward for the winning should be rewarded as a team as well. So you need to make sure that when we work with teams and we say all these things, the policies that are in the company sustain what we are saying or the way that we want to work. What I liked about Fidel's point here is he's kind of making the point that that culture and policy require each other. And equally, if there's some kind of disparity or difference between how how we're, you know, we say we're going to act and how we're actually acting, uh, not only is that going to impact um, psychological safety negatively, but also probably employee engagement. So going back to the news roundup, roundup, for example, if you've got HR policy that says that, you know, equality and, and diversity and we make sure that everyone is, is treated equally and with, you know, equitable pay and blah, 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 yet you have a... A 15% gender pay gap in your organization, then those two things aren't connecting. So there's there's a lack of authenticity here. And I think it comes down to, you know, the same with 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 recruitment practices. If you're saying we are a diverse organization, we celebrate diversity, yet you can't answer the question, is my current recruitment practice bias? Then there is work to be done. And so I think if you're really looking for a starting point in terms of diversifying your teams, in terms of nurturing these um, these diverse cultures and these engaging cultures, start with your processes, do an audit of your processes. How are my, my current beliefs, my current policies reflected in my processes? Are my processes fair and free from bias as my values and policies tell me I should be? And of course, once we've, you know, we've, we've established these things and we have this culture, um, you know, culture can change. It is always at threat. There are some risks to our teams and our culture. I'm sure you're familiar with, with Bruce Tuckman's stages of group development, forming, storming, norming, performing, a really classic model used in, in psychology. Um, but it's been extended now to kind of make the point that that, you know, there will be a change and then there'll be reforming, restorming, renorming. Um, because, you know, in this in this world, nothing is certain and everything changes. And even, you know, some of the most common and desirable changes that businesses face, like growth, um, you know, that can also serve as one of the biggest risks to our, our teams, their performance and our culture. So I asked Fidel, what can business leaders do to protect their culture? Maybe it's not about protecting um, I think that there's, uh, there are values that, there are core values that uh, you would like to, to retain and to nurture and to, to improve to some degree. Um, as a culture, uh, if you are doubling the team, I think if the expectation is to, is to keep the culture that you have with the, with the original team, 
I think we are starting to sacrifice the diversity of that that brings the the other half of the equation. Um, and I think uh, you know just be bold and curious and see what uh, these these people bring and see how we together build what now represents us. Because when when we are trying to protect effectively, we are trying to preserve our identity. And we are trying to say, well, we are right, and they are not so right. So maybe we need to show a little bit of vulnerability. It happens all the time that the, the original team, in a way, uh, tries to preserve their, their traits and identity. Um, I'm not so sure that that fits with the concept of the audacious team. I think it can be really tempting, as a, particularly as a business owner who's still leading that organization, you know, if you've built a great culture in, in your first few years, you know, and, and you want to grow from 20 to 30 to 100 people, there can be a sense of responsibility to protect the culture and team that you've built. But I think what Fidel's saying there is really, really two things. One, your team needs to evolve with your business because the team you have today might not be able to f- fulfill what your business needs when it, it's reached 100 people and has that much more complexity around it. And two, I think it's the danger of being too protective over this identity is that these new people coming in, it has a real danger of fostering this us and them mentality. And I've seen that in businesses before that have grown quickly and haven't been, you know, hasn't been managed very well or the people have been so, you know, holding onto this identity. It does create this, we're the OGs, you're the new people, this is how we do it. Um, And this is again where all these microcultures start to breed from. Um, So yeah, I think it can feel, again, intuitive to want to protect your culture. Um, but I think the actual counterintuitive solution is don't. That's also what I really like about um, about Audax Generation, Fidel and Martin's business, is that it really is about creating these experiences that allow us to explore ourselves as individuals, what, what our strengths are, what we, we see our strengths are, what other people see our strengths are, how do we work together, how do we define these roles, how do we have this, this shared purpose, how do we use our diversity to come up with the best possible solutions. And they do it in the most fun way. So Audax Generation is all about these immersive experiences like like we said, building human towers and and all these really cool things. Um, it really is a great business. So we couldn't finish the podcast without learning a bit more about Audax Generation and the services that Martin and Fidel provide. And we call them audacious teams. And why are they audacious teams? Because they are pushing themselves to achieve something unbelievable with the resources that they have. So they do maximize the resources. They do know how to unlock the, the talent that they have, the potential that they have in the team. So if, if we are working with the human towers, they are going to be making human towers. And, and the making of human towers, there, there are so many goals. So they may be part of the, of, the, of the base, they might be climbing, they might be observing, they might be organizing. If there is a place for everyone to be part of this immersive experience. So Martin also explains how these experiences can build trust and in turn contribute to an inclusive and diverse culture. And I think just one other thing is, is the trust. So, you know, if you can do all those things, then which we alluded to, then you, you create trust. And, you know, that's why we use the Cast S, for example, you know, human towers. If, if you don't, you know, know each other's super strengths and, and you don't trust each other, then, you know, you can't build 
10 floors high without uh, it ending in, in, in disasters, which, which I think is a, you know, often a good challenge to organizations, which, yes, you need you know, policies and stuff in place, but sometimes uh, we kind of get stuck behind those, those checklists and those policies and forget about the, you know, the human element. It's such an innovative way to, to do team building. Um, do have a look at, at their website. And I think what's particularly important about Audax Generation, how Martin Fidel work, it's not just about this one awesome day that people spend together in. You know, they bond and they have fun. They actually look at ways to take it forward, um, you know, to, to make sure that those those changes are made when people go back to work on Monday. Um, and of course, they do that through coaching, helping people to realise what, you know, reflect on their experience, what they've learned about themselves, what they've learned about other people in their team um, and what they can actually do to trigger the changes that are needed within the organisation. It's a really, really, really cool company. We will leave all the links in the show notes. Do check it out, Audax Generation. Brilliant. So should we just quickly recap on the six things we've learned? Yes. Okay, so number one is don't fall into the trap of recruiting superstars. There's a bit more nuance around that. Yes. And I think to use psychometrics wisely, it's not enough to use psychometrics. You need to be using the right psychometrics and in the right way. Number three, use team building experiences playfully. Yeah, I think it doesn't always have to be that serious, you know. Um, you know, you can think about, I think about, you know, like like treasure hunts or orienteering or, you know, I think, you know, I used to do a really funny team building thing or like icebreaker team thing. Um, with my coaching clients, so where we used to um, two teams, one both have an egg, and you've got some tools like string and straw and paper and scissors, and you have to create some kind of like safety vessel for the egg, and then you drop it from like a great height and see which one. It doesn't always have to be that serious, you know. As long as you're then reflecting on those behaviours, what we learn, how can we apply this into a more serious work situation, uh, which I think brings us on, on to nicely to point four, which is use coaching always. Number five, don't protect your culture, evolve it. And number six, yes, there are recruitment practices that will help you build a diverse and inclusive team. Uh, but it's as much about culture, diversity of thought and how that is encouraged. Uh, there's no point bringing somebody into your business if you don't have an environment that's going to nurture them uh, to, to use all their superpowers. Brilliant. So thank you so much to all our guests, uh, Ryan Sherman from Hogan. Uh, his links will be in the show notes. Martin Solway and Fidel Torreiro. I'm sorry, Fidel, I had another go at it. I don't think, I did, don't think I've got it right. From the Audax Generation, links to those in the show notes. Yes, and join us next week as we'll be wrapping up Women's History Month with a very special episode. And I'm not going to say anything more than that. Even I don't know what it is. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye for now. Bye.